Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Tonight, we're going to 1970, just six months after the Charles Manson followers stunned the country with six cult killings that left horrifying crime scenes in Southern California. When this double homicide in Columbus happened on February the 27th, so many rumors circulated that the scene featured satanic rituals and cryptic messages written in blood. The police had to work hard to try and quash this idea that the cult killers had come to Ohio. And in truth, nobody needed to make up any fake elements to this crime. It was terrifyingly gruesome without any elaboration. The victims were a young couple named Mary Petrie, a 20-year-old native of Portsmouth, Ohio, and William Sprout, her 22-year-old beau from Havertown, Pennsylvania. Mary was the daughter of Paul and Marcella Petrie and a graduate of Notre Dame High School in Portsmouth. She was a twin to a sister named Martha, who went to Minnesota for college. She came from a very religious family. She had another sister who was a nun serving in Columbia, South America, a brother who was a chaplain at a Columbus Academy, and another brother attending college in Rome and on his way to becoming a priest. William was the son of Mr. and Mrs. William Sprout Sr., and had grown up in the suburbs of Philadelphia with his sister, Patricia. William and Mary had been dating for a couple of years, then met in 1968 when they both lived in Cincinnati. Mutual friends introduced them at a performance of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. It was love at first sight. William was a student at Xavier University. Mary attended Mount St. Joseph College, and they had so much in common. They were both French majors, had both spent time studying in France on scholarships, and both aspired to be teachers. After William received his undergraduate degree, he was accepted into Ohio State University's graduate program. This meant making the move to Columbus. Mary still had a couple of years left at her Cincinnati school, where her professors considered her the best student in the Modern Languages Department. After all, she had won that scholarship to study in France when she was but a freshman, and it was a scholarship open to undergraduate and graduate students alike. But Columbus and Cincinnati were less than two hours from each other. They took turns spending weekends in each other's town. In Columbus, William moved into off-campus housing in the 100 block of West 8th Avenue. He shared an apartment with a childhood friend from Havertown, Tom McGuigan. Tom was a psychology graduate student. It was a tree-lined street filled with three-story houses that were once single-family homes, but they had been taken over by rental companies and converted into student housing. 
William and Tom had the second floor. On Friday, February the 27th, 1970, William originally expected to be headed down to Cincinnati, but Mary learned William had a big paper due, and it just made sense for him to stay in Columbus, and she traveled there. By the way, they were a very proper couple. They never spent the night together, but rather with friends they knew. On this trip, Mary had made arrangements to stay at an OSU dorm with another woman. And so, late Friday afternoon, Mary carpooled with other Cincinnati classmates who were headed to Columbus, and they took her as far as to their hotel, a Holiday Inn just outside the city limits. From there, Mary took a taxi to William's apartment. The taxi driver dropped her off and watched as she entered the house carrying her suitcase at about 6 p.m., The cabbie was the last person outside William's apartment to see Mary alive. The last person to talk to Mary was that female friend she was going to stay with. Mary called her at 7.30 p.m. to confirm she'd be over later. William's roommate, Tom McGuigan, by the way, wasn't home. He was spending the night away and actually had just left moments before Mary's cab pulled up. Now, around 10 p.m. that night, a tenant who lived on the third floor entered the house, passing William's second-floor apartment on the way up to his own. The door was open. It was dark inside, but a radio was playing. He didn't investigate. At 1 p.m. Saturday afternoon, William's roommate, Tom, returned home and found the door ajar. He walked in, and before long, he came across two gruesome, blood-stained scenes. The first was in the bathroom. William was there. He was lying face down, his body contorted so his wrists could be bound to his ankles behind his back with coat hangers. The wire was wound so tightly, police believed it likely a plier was used to tighten them. He was also gagged. Police said it appeared the assailant had made some effort to make William comfortable. It was never clarified what that meant, though some have suggested he might have been given a pillow. But at some point, after he was bound and gagged, he was stabbed up to 20 times in the back with a seven-and-a-half-inch butcher knife taken from his kitchen and left at the crime scene. The other crime scene was in the bedroom. Mary was found face-up on the bed, nude below the waist, and crudely posed. She was also bound, some news reports said by hangers, some said by rope. She had been stabbed as many as 16 times. Her throat was cut and a wire coat hanger was twisted around her neck. She'd also been struck several times in the head with a bowling ball. The bowling ball also came from the apartment and remained there. Early reports said she had been raped, but later reports said the coroner did not find conclusive evidence that she had been sexually assaulted, though no one doubted that was the intent of the killer. There was no sign of a forced entry, 
and no indication the couple had the opportunity to put up a fight. Nothing was amiss, and no indication either had been able to scratch their assailant. The only thing out of place was a large stuffed chair pushed up against a window in an apparent effort to close a 12-inch gap in the curtains. No neighbors had heard anything, but then again, it was the weekend in a college town, and many of the houses were empty anyway. Small amounts of cash had been taken from William's billfold and Mary's purse. Police also asked the public's help in locating something else missing from the apartment, a gold cotton throw rug, two feet by four feet, which had been in the hallway between the apartment's two bedrooms. That may have turned up six days later. Police were called to an abandoned Omar Bakery truck located eight blocks from William's apartment where a small gold rug was found inside. The roommate said the rug looked similar, though police could never be 100% sure it was the same one. Either way, it was a complete mystery as to why the rug had been taken at all. A couple of days after the murder, lab technicians from the state's crime lab were asked to look over the scene, and they found something Columbus police had missed. Several sets of bloody fingerprints. Detectives talked to more than 200 people in the days after the investigation in both Columbus and Cincinnati, but they were becoming more and more convinced that the murders were the work of the North Side serial rapist. There had been several rapes in this neighborhood, which was south of campus, but on the north end of the city. The victims all lived in an area bordered by Neal Avenue and High Street and 5th to 11th Avenues. The rapist always bound and gagged his victims and always used what was available in the house rather than bring his own tools, although occasionally he had produced a gun. In each rape, the attacker had taken pains to make sure windows were covered, once even draping a bedspread over a window that already had curtains on it. The rapist always gained access to an apartment by asking to use the phone. In cases where he was told a phone wasn't available, he would ask for a pen or pencil to leave a note for a neighbor. Investigators wondered if maybe this rapist had seen Mary enter the house carrying her suitcase and assumed she was alone. And his intentions escalated when he entered the apartment and realized there was a man inside. There were also a couple of curious incidents that made police wonder if a couple of other people had seen the killer. The neighborhood paperboy reported that around 8 p.m. the night of the murders, he was making the rounds to collect his fees and attempted to enter the house where William lived. But he encountered a man on the porch, someone he had never seen before, who told him harshly, get the hell out of here. And he did. The second incident was the day after the murders, about 8 p.m. that Saturday. A 19-year-old female student living just half a block from the crime scene fended off an attempted home invasion. 
She said a young man came to her door pretending to be a policeman. When he couldn't produce identification, she became suspicious and sprayed him with tear gas, causing him to flee. Unfortunately, students in the area told reporters they were getting used to such incidents. They described their neighborhood as crime-ridden. What had once been a family-friendly neighborhood was now densely filled with young students who were found to be easy prey by a criminal element. After the murder of William and Mary, Columbus police went looking for the six previous rape victims, some of whom had already moved away, and sat down with each of them to work on a composite picture of their attacker. They described a man who was white, clean-cut, some remembered him with glasses. He was perhaps 23 to 26 years old, 5 foot 10 inches, 185 pounds, with brown hair, brown eyes, and a slightly pockmarked face. I couldn't find any stories that clarified whether the man seen by the paper boy or the woman who fought off that home invasion matched the same description. While it has been more than 50 years without a single arrest or key suspect identified, modern-day detectives believe there is hope for solving this case. They say there was some preserved biological matter found at the scene that was presumed to belong to the assailant, enough that a DNA profile was created. In 2008, the Columbus Dispatch reported the DNA had been entered into CODIS, but didn't get a hit. More recent newspaper stories say the evidence was submitted for updated testing, but there was no follow-up announcement that I could find. If you have any information on the killings of William Sprout and Mary Petrie, please contact the Columbus Cold Case Unit at 614-645-4036 or call the Central Ohio Crime Stoppers, 614-461-8477. That's it for a 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here next week for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.